first reading tonight is, uh, as Mark said, on page 875, Revelation chapter 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is, not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be called will be his called chosen and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Continuing chapter 18. The fall of Babylon. After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, 
a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen, I am not a widow, and I will never mourn. Therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power! In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls. Fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth. Every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages and bodies and souls of men. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who learn their, earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, where all... All who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's greatest men. 
But your magic spell, by your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and of all who have been killed on the earth. Here ends the reading. Oh, well, good evening. My name is Ronaldo Sanchez. I'm one of the student ministers here at Church Father Bridge. Uh, uh, but more importantly, I'm also a brother in Christ, a Christian, and have been for about nine years now. Uh, how about I pray and ask for God's help as, he, as we look at this um, passage today. Our Father, we pray to you because uh, we need your help in all things. And you are our Father. And I pray that as we look um, at this particular passage of Revelation tonight, you would be with us. You would open our eyes to see the world as you see it. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, Last year when I was working as a training minister at the University of Sydney, um, a voice of the martyrs came and visited us. And uh, during that presentation, I heard probably one of the saddest and um, probably most disturbing stories um, from a girl called Esther from North Korea. You see, in this presentation, uh, uh, I was told that um, uh, so many churches around the world are persecuted, and particularly North Korea, uh, Christians there are just persecuted and killed. And in this one particular girl, she shared with us, actually, that um, uh, her whole life, and particularly in North Korea, her whole life is geared towards the fact that you worship um, a man by the name of Kim Jong-il. He claims to be a divine figure because his father was a great, uh, mighty warrior who slayed the Japanese, Kim Il-sung. And basically, every aspect of life was geared around this whole lie. Um, Esther shared that, for example, the hymns they sung at school um, were in response to him, to worship him. Let me read you a hymn that um, they used to sing at school. You pushed away the storm. You made us believe, comrade Kim Jong-il. We cannot live without you. Our country cannot exist without you. Our future and hope depend on you. People's fate depend on you, comrade Kim Jong-il. We cannot live without you. Our country cannot exist without you. Uh, More, there were forced pilgrimages to um, so-called battle victory sites to sort of worship and revere these great leaders. Uh, The birthday of Kim Jong-il was actually regarded as the most precious day Uh, for North Koreans. And plus the masses of monuments, statues and posters that line every public space. To the fact in one of their great public squares as well, uh, during midday a a siren is sounded and people will stand, just pause as soon as the siren is standed. They'll go for two minutes and it'll be like one of those sort of World War II sirens and they'll just stop, bow their heads and just revere their great leader. And you see, growing up, she didn't know that this was a lie, that this grand narrative about this guy called Kim Jong-il was just a fabrication, and that her society was actually just deeply entrenched in it. And what she did was she actually escaped into China, not because uh, that this was a lie, but because um, uh, most of the country is geared towards uh, setting up this lie. Most of the gross national income is actually set up to actually feed this lie. And worse was, when she made it into China, she was actually trafficked into human prostitution. Uh, She was sold off, and thankfully the man that bought her was a Christian and took her to a Christian safe house. Uh, Initially shocked and scared, but then she was introduced to the true son of God, the true divine figure, and that was Jesus. 
And then someone from Voice of the Martyrs came up and explained that pretty much everyone who escapes North Korea goes through deep psychological shock and extreme trauma as they realize that the very world that um, they were taught is actually not true. And she stood there, Esther, this small Korean lady, speaking in Korean, uh, and she had a translator, and just tears coming down her eyes as she was sharing this story. And we at the university were just shocked. Uh, we had nothing to say. And when you hear a story like this, my question to you is, uh, does it make you angry? Does it make you sick to your stomach? Desire for God to bring an end to regimes like this, that he decisively and finally punishes those human kingdoms that just cause much suffering and cause a great lie to think that they should be worshipped. That shed the blood of the innocent, the blood of brothers and sisters in Christ. Now I'm hoping that your answer is a yes. Mine is a resounding yes. And the book of Revelation gives us a resounding yes. And the reason that it's not a half-hearted, shallow yes is because God actually exercises his anger and his wrath. You see, last week in Revelation 15 to 16, this is what we saw, wasn't it? We saw this wide-angle picture of God actually showing his anger upon the inhabitants of the earth. It was a nasty picture, a nasty picture, really terrifying. And what you see in Revelation 17 to 18 is actually zooms in and takes a particular focus. And the focus of God's wrath in these chapter, chapters is on evil earthly kingdoms, systems and structures of evil that rule on our earth. That's the focus of Revelation 17 to 18. And as you saw those six bowls of God's wrath being poured out by the angels, it's terrifying, isn't it, that, you know, that people would actually just have God's wrath splashed all over them. That's, that's the picture that it's giving. Here the angel takes the seventh bowl and he pretty much elaborates on it. And the object here is not individuals, but corporate. And I realize this is a really hard topic for us to hear. A really hard topic for us to hear again tonight. I don't like hearing it as much as you do. But let me just give you some words of, you know, for encouragement. Remember that in, John, in, in this book of Revelation, John says it, these words, for our blessing. If we take it to heart, it'll be for our blessing. And secondly, this. God's wrath and his judgment go in hand in hand with his salvation. It's like hand in glove. You see, you want to meet Jesus, don't you, and be in his presence. You want the world to be renewed and for God's kingdom and reign to actually be established. Well, in the language of Revelation, the bride, God's people, dressed in white, will meet her husband and the new Jerusalem will come down. And for this to happen, the great prostitute, that metaphor here in 17, and that ancient city, well, they need to be done away with. They need to be destroyed. And what I believe is actually Revelation 17 to 18, the ultimate fulfillment of these things will happen at the end of time, the end of this age, human history. And the reason why I think this is because if you look at the prevailing images here of this prostitute and this great city, they actually contrast with the bride who's dressed in white in Revelation 21 and the great new city that's going to come down. This is a necessary step for us to reach the end. So with the reality of evil, kingdoms in mind, the fact that they exist, and with the fact that we've heard Esther's story, and the promised things are good things to come, let's delve into Revelation 17 to 18 and see what it has to say for us. So I've got two points tonight. First is this. 
the prostitute and her pet beast, and the second is the ancient city Babylon. Two points. See, what these chapters can be found about, uh, what they're about, is found right there in verse 1. The angel who carried the bowl of God's wrath says to John, have a look at it in verse 1, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. This is the next installment of God's anger. And as we've seen, John takes, uh, John's taken away by the Spirit, and he's given a graphic representation of this punishment, or of this woman. And it's there in verse 3. There I saw a woman. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. It's a tragic and anger-invoking picture, isn't it? Tragic because a prostitute represents innocence lost, purity corrupted, and beauty spoiled. And it's a particularly hard image to kind of swallow on a night like tonight, isn't it, when we celebrate Mother's Day, to think of a prostitute. And anger-invoking because a prostitute is manipulative and conniving and a user of people. And so the great question is, who is she when we read this? Who is this prostitute? Well, I think the prostitute is a great metaphor for the great city of Rome, from which the Roman Empire was based. This is John's context. Let me point some things out to you. Verse 18, if you look at it, tells us that the woman is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. And verse 9, the woman is, uh, sits on the seven hills, or is a city that sits on the seven hills. I think in John's time, there could only be one place, that's Rome, built on seven hills. And you see what God's saying In God's eyes, this great world superpower is a whore, a prostitute, a harlot. And like all prostitutes of their time, back in the ancient times, they have a title on their head. And that's what we see in verse 5. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. It's a scathing attack on Rome, isn't it? And so it's like any prostitute... It's a criminal activity. You've got to ask yourself, what is on this prostitute's rap sheet? Like, what's on her criminal record? What leads to her punishment? I want to suggest three things. I think it's a combination of her clothing, her encounters, and what she's drinking. Her clothing, her encounters, and what she's drinking. And let me explain in that order. Have a look at verse 4, what she's wearing. She wears purple and scarlet with so many precious jewels that she glitters. She shimmers and sparkles. She has that many jewels. I think this is a picture of Rome, of the great city of Rome, uh, in excessive material and economic prosperity. The sheer opulence of this great city of Rome meant that the riches acquired by the empire were fed back into her. She was like a vortex, essentially, just sucking all the riches of her empire back into herself. And you see what she dresses herself with. Gucci, Dolce & Gabbana, jewellery from Tiffany's. Did you know that, uh, actually, in just doing some research, that in ancient times, purple linen was incredibly expensive and rare? Uh, Because unlike today, you know, if we want to get the colour purple, we don't just turn on our Mac computer and um, put on Microsoft Paint. Actually, to get purple, what you needed to do was you needed to extract it from these sea snails. 
And uh, you needed hundreds of these things just to get a small quantity of the dye. And this was Rome's colour. This is what this city draped itself in. It was her national colour. And I think this is pretty much confirmed as well when you look at chapter 18 and you see the fact that her ruin is actually about economic ruin. It's a disgusting picture of Rome as a financial and economic bloodsucker. And perhaps the reason why she sits on so many waters is what is explained about her, is the fact that she sits on so many peoples, nations and multitudes. Her desire for regal status, for opulence, means she oppresses, dominates the people of the world and takes, takes from them. That's the picture here. And her encounters, secondly, well, she's a tempting seductress. She offers peace and security and prosperity for any nation that places themselves under her. Perhaps this refers to the golden cup that she's handing out when she holds out in verse 4. It's enticing, isn't it? I don't know, just picture yourself at uh, after-work drinks on a Friday uh, at the Shangri-La Hotel just on the other side of the bridge in the cocktail bar. Uh, you're sitting down with your friends, you're ordering your cocktail. Uh, the guy that looks like Ryan Gosling from The Notebook comes with the martini glass and offers it to you. That's sort of the picture here, isn't it? That Rome is one tempting place. She'll offer her security and her prosperity to anyone who places herself under her. And sadly, the people of the earth, they're lured into her seduction. And we see it in verse 2. With her, the kings of the earth commit adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth are intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. And it's a disgusting thing, because I think she's actually holding out. It looks good from the outside, but it's actually just quite revolting. It actually leads people to commit adultery with God. You see, it gave the illusion that it was a world superpower, that the name above all names was Rome, and that the source of life and everything about reality was from Rome. And I reckon what John's saying here is, don't be tempted by that cup. It's filled with nasty things, and it's not worth the price. And thirdly, what she drinks. You see, the third charge in a rap sheet I think is probably the most indicting. Have a look at what she drinks. Verse 6. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. She's drunk with the blood of Christians, the Christians who faithfully hold on to Jesus as Lord. And at this point, I think it's worth introducing the beast that she rides on, this beast with horns and heads. And we've been introduced to him in chapter 13, haven't we? You see, I think this beast is another expression of Rome, but just in a different facet or in a different light. Whereas the image of the prostitutes about her and her seduction, the beast is the nastier side, isn't it? The nastier side that actually kills and oppresses with might and power and domination physically. And so she's tempting to a point, isn't she? But uh, if you don't cooperate, she'll unleash that beast on you and blood will be shed and she'll drink of that. It's a disgusting image that we have here in Revelation 17. And what God wants to assure John and all the people who read this letter is that the evil empire of his day will come to an end. It's spoken of in verses 14 to 16. Now, I can't go into the details, particularly verse 16. Let me read it to you. 
It says here, the beast and the ten horns you see will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. I don't know why her pet turns on her. Um, it seems like the more commentaries you read, the more opinions you get. I think the common denominator that you get with that is actually God has designed it, or evil has been designed in such a way that God will use it, that it will actually turn in on itself. I think that's probably the only thing I can get from that. That evil will turn on itself, that the beast will destroy the prostitute, and actually the beast in turn will be overcome by the lamb in verse 14. And what follows in chapter 18 is basically an expansion. It's just another picture of this woman being sort of overthrown and being eaten by a beast. But it just pictures it in sort of city and earthly terms where actually here you see this great city just now come to ruin. Uh, It just takes it from another angle and expands on it. And you see, it's a vivid scene of Babylon the whore after her destruction, chapter 18, after she faces the wrath of God. And here's the rub for us guys at CBTB. It's not just Rome that this refers to. And here's the reason. The name that's given of this ancient city, Babylon. See, John didn't just use the name Rome. He used Babylon. And it was this ancient city in the Old Testament, infamous for its ungodly practices, It's claimed to be the supreme being of the world through all its might and riches and the persecutor of God's people. So arrogant is her attitude that in verse 7 of chapter 18, she says, In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen. I'm not a widow and I'll never mourn. Let me read you something similar from Isaiah when it's spoken of Babylon. Isaiah 14. Look it up in your quiet times. You said in your heart... I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You see, this name Babylon's loaded with meaning. You see, John's using Babylon as a typology, and I think we make typologies as well, just to illustrate. You know, think of that ratty kid that you had at school, um, that brat that just totally frustrated you. When you see a kid like behaving like that in a shopping mall today, you think of the name of the original, right? Back, back when you were in primary school. Uh, for me, it's a kid called Jabin. This kid was a nasty piece of work. Nasty piece of work. And if he's listening in MP3 land, I hope he's repented of his ways. <laughs> Every kid I see who plays up in the shopping mall, woe to you, Jabin. And you see what John's saying. Well, if the shoe fits, you're going to wear it, Rome. You're Babylon. And just as Rome was a version of it back then, there'll be versions of it today, reincarnations. And we have the opportunity to apply that typology. In some senses, CBTB, we are in the midst of a modern-day Babylon. I think if John were here today, he would still speak of the prostitute, but perhaps with different targets in mind. What systems of evil, exploitation and greed exist around us today? I've got a few examples. Perhaps the gambling industry. So dependent is our state government on revenues from the gambling industry 
that it is deeply entrenched in our economy. Families are destroyed through gambling addiction. I heard that in the lifetime of each poker machine, it makes $1 million of its users. At the time a poker machine is put in a club, to the time it's decommissioned, it makes $1 million of its users. Manufacturers of gaming machines do psychological research to figure out the best compositions of colours on poker machines and sounds that will most entice its users when they're in the club. Secondly, what about the pornography industry? The way it exploits women who perform in it, it destroys marriages, it produces and devalues and makes a mockery of God's good gift of sex in our society. And with the advent of the internet, it can now even be channeled into our room, can't it? You see, these industries with their structures of seduction and abuse destroy the lives of thousands of people and its merchants just get rich of it every year. And you see what Revelation is saying, right? The issue is totally underestimated if you just say, well, it's a matter of individual choice and responsibility. Yes, the Bible definitely talks about that, that we, if we are entrenched in those things, need to personally repent. But Revelation gives a much, much bigger picture. There are systems of evil in our world that are responsible for these things. That is the other side that John is trying to point us to. And perhaps the one that affects us most is this. How our city excessively clothes itself in fine linen and purple, glittering with jewels. Sydney has an insatiable appetite for material wealth and prosperity, does it not? Does it not? And scarily, much of the outcome of God's judgment is directed at the wealth and materialism of Babylon in chapter 18. You see, if you look at our economy, economic success is defined in terms of retail spending, our consumption, how much we produce. When was the last time as a nation, as Australia, we actually took the initiative to give generously, not ad hoc, when some sort of disaster happened? Our foreign aid, I researched as a percentage of our GDP in 2009, was 0.29%. 0.29%. Apparently one of the stingiest compared to OECD countries. Because our economic system is totally geared towards self-advancement. How about our media? Much of our secular media promotes hedonism. Just about every magazine you pick up these days, the Saturday newspaper, the ads on the TV, try to intoxicate us, don't they? with an ideal of what we should be wearing, the gadgets that should be in our pocket, and the holiday destinations that will give us an experience of a lifetime. And it's incredibly hard because you guys in the pews work in some of these industries, and I struggle to actually come up with contemporary examples. It's a very enticing cup that our city holds out to us, isn't it? We're tempted to drink this promise of wealth, power, and glory that our city gives us. And hear what God says to the Babylon of John's time and to us who live in modern-day Babylon. God will bring it to ruin. Let's just skim over chapter 18. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. This destruction is just complete. This regal city that has, that's just, all roads lead to Rome. Well, not anymore. In fact, it'll just be empty and desolate. 
verse 2. Verses 9 to 15 or to 17, the wealth of this great city, Rome, the fact that everyone wanted to trade with her, I'd just be sitting back as I approach her going, whoa, whoa, fallen is she. She'll be burnt up. It's a common example of God's judgment in the Old Testament. Burnt up. Just a city that will lie desolate. And finally, verse 20. If being burnt up wasn't the worst, this angel gives this picture of the city being like a great boulder which she'll pick up and just throw into the depths of the sea. And if you're someone who's been sucked into these systems of evil or you mourn over the worldly kingdoms that oppress and use people, then take comfort that God has brought about and has prophesied and promised their doom. I suppose the key question is then, if this is the outcome, if this is the future, how do we live today in our, in our present-day Babylon? Well, I think the answer lies in 18, chapter 18, verses 4 onwards. I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. You spot the great irony in this? That in the Old Testament, this city called Babel, which is just actually Babylon. They tried building this massive tower to God just because they wanted to make a name for themselves. Uh, They actually thought that they could be better than God. And the irony is that the only thing that's reaching heaven is their sin. That's the only thing that reaches to him. Well, the command to us is to come out of her. And you see, for us to come out of her, do you see what that implies? It implies we're in her presence. I don't think this means that we actually go off as church by the bridge, build our own agricultural community out in rural Australia, growing our own potatoes and having our own little subsistence economy. I don't think that's what it is. I think the key is come out of her so that you will not share in her sins. I don't think it's a geographic distancing, but a spiritual one. You see... If we're God's people and we've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, then on that last day when actually all this happens, we should not be found with any of her plagues, her STDs or her sins, is what he's saying. It's a spiritual distancing. As we live life for the Lamb, we need to be more faithful to his calling. And that's how we distance ourselves from the great whore. Let me just give you a couple of examples to finish. Uh, and the tricky thing with examples, aren't they, is they can be, come across as legalism, and I, I, I hope that's not the way you take it. Maybe what you need to do is actually, if you've got investments with your great wealth, you actually need to take a good look at the companies you invest in and see whether they're actually companies that you could, with an ethical conscience, invest in. Maybe you need to look at that superannuation fund and actually see what your super manager actually is investing in. 
Uh, Vietnam. Vietnam is the next Thailand for holidays, isn't it? Uh, I was talking to someone in a small group the other week. But you know, Vietnam also persecutes brothers and sisters in Christ, that they're imprisoned and beaten continuously. And one has to really question whether you could you know, go to Vietnam on holiday and feed an economic system, which then is actually going to persecute Christians. But we need to do the hard work as a church, don't we? So my question to you is, how have we been seduced by the whore? How much of the whore's fashion trend has rubbed off on you? In what areas of your life do you, need to, do you need to heed the command to come out of her? You see, Revelation tells us that evil is, really does exist more than just on an individual level, but at a corporate level. And I really think we need God's wisdom to see the way in which we can come out of her. And my prayer is for you tonight is when you go over to supper, uh, please talk about your weekends, but talk really about how it is you can come out of her, how it is that you will not share inner sins because be thankful friends God will bring an end to her and he'll bring an end to all the evil that corrupts and destroys the good purposes he's had for his world let me pray for God's help our father this is a really really disturbing and startling picture Uh, of the prostitute who has intoxicated and has caused much adulteries in this world, of a city or the typology of this city, Father, that just is so arrogant to think that it could be greater than you. Our Father, as we live in this world waiting for the Lamb, the husband who will marry his church, help us to be faithful to him, Help us to not share in the sins of this city. And I pray that you would strengthen us to do this by the power of your spirit. Amen.